Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Borrowway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Unz, at Spark Parade on all social media. Thanks ever so much for joining me. It's another Film Friday, folks. Exciting stuff. And what better way to celebrate than to listen to my extremely fun chat with Mobland director Nicholas Maggio about Reservoir Dogs. Um, I think I mentioned this in the interview. Not sure. Maybe. If I do, I'm repeating it. Uh, But this is the first time anyone has wanted to talk about a Tarantino movie, which is kind of surprising. But uh, the Tarantino drought ends today. So let's dive right in. Quick Nicholas facts. Born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and raised in Bakersfield, California, Nicholas Maggio now lives in Los Angeles. His directorial debut, Mobland, is an homage to the classic American neo-noir genre. He has cited hardcore music, loud cars, southern gothic, and growing up in the grit of 90s independent cinema as the driving inspirations for his work. Mobland stars John Travolta, Stephen Dorff, and Kevin Dillon, and right now, today, it has been released digitally, just in time for you to watch it this weekend. Convenient, isn't that? Quick Reservoir Dogs facts. Reservoir Dogs is a neo-noir crime film written and directed by Quentin Tarantino in his feature-length debut. It stars Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, Michael Madsen, Tarantino himself, and Edward Bunker as diamond thieves whose heist of a jewelry store goes terribly wrong. It incorporates many motifs that have become Tarantino's hallmarks, violent crime, pop culture references, profanity, and non-linear storytelling. It is regarded as a classic of independent film and was named greatest independent film of all time by Empire Magazine. Although controversial at first for its depictions of violence and heavy use of profanity, Reservoir Dogs was generally well received with the cast being praised by many critics. And there you have it. Let's get into it. Here comes my chat with Nicholas Maggio about Reservoir Dogs. 
Do you remember seeing Reservoir Dogs for the first time or hearing about it? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that is, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it was like a spiritual awakening. I mean, it was truly like one of those moments in life when, uh, so I was in Pennsylvania visiting a friend who had moved away, who I grew up with. He had moved to uh, Pittsburgh. He had a basement, which was new for me because I'm a California kid. And so we were in his basement, we're hanging out. And he had a VHS, you know, we were, we went and rented a movie. Um, you know, I would say up until that point, it was, it was Indiana Jones and it was, uh, you know, rad. And it was just all the movies that I grew up with in the eighties. It was the Spielberg, George Lucas, which are all, you know, I love growing up in that time period, but like, I didn't know anything about independent films at that point in my life. And I remember being at the video store in Pittsburgh and seeing Reservoir Dogs and being like, well, what is this? And the you know, guy behind the counter, I think was like, oh, you guys should watch that. So we rented this movie and I just remember being in my friend's basement. I'm 13 years old and just like jaw on the floor. And I didn't know movies could be that. I didn't know that you could do this. Um, I didn't grow up with 70s action. You know, it's just not what when my dad and I would watch a movie, it was Ben Hur and Lawrence of Arabia and Bridger of the River Kwai, all these all these other great movies. But it wasn't French Connection. You know, it wasn't Hunter. It wasn't Harper. It wasn't these great 60s and 70s gritty movies. So I didn't know anything about it. And I remember just watching Reservoir Dogs, just my mind blown that you could do this, that you could say these things and that you could show action in that way and you could show brutality, but it was still pretty and the dialogue actually meant something. And so, yeah, I, I, it was absolutely like a spiritual, yeah, awakening. That's what, that's what I say. And I'm, you know, I'm a huge movie nerd now and I get it, Tarantino and he's, you know, like he's a God, uh, but man, that film, holy shit, like just seeing it for the first time was something special. And I was at the perfect age too. Like what 13 year old boy doesn't love guns and violence. And, you know, it was, it was absolutely perfect. Right. And, you know, having a movie that's like notorious for like, oh, people were walking out because it's so gross and nobody can handle it. And it's like, I can handle it. Yes. Yeah. I'm a man now. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) For sure. Um, But that, that thing of, you know, having the like cinephile uh, teenage or early twenties video store guy who's just like, you know, thinks he's the coolest person in the world. Absolutely. He's the gatekeeper. And for, you know, younger kids, it's like, hey, listen to me. You got to watch this. And there's something that, you know, I miss that, you know, I talk a lot on this podcast about like analog versus, uh, you know, digital and being able to like in the, in the physical media days, going into a video store and being able to talk to somebody who, I mean, I guess it's not always the case that people who worked at video stores actually were there because they love movies, but a lot of time you, a lot of the time you'd be able to find somebody. A lot of times, especially the smaller ones. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's where Quentin Tarantino started. So um, absolutely. Yeah. He was for sure that dude. Yeah. yeah. He would probably not rent certain films to certain people if they looked a certain way, you know? Right. Right. And I, all of that stuff informs everything that he did in this movie and everything that he's done in his career, that it's that starting point is a love of film and studying film, having just being so absorbed with the art form obsessed and taking all of that stuff, you know, little references to other movies and building his own, uh, style his own world of of cinema and this is the foundation of it and like what a 
what a fucking debut. What um what a way to kind of, you know, I know he'd ri- written stuff, but um to like announce yourself in in the the world of film. Oh yeah, it's it's just it's almost annoying. It's like really <laughs> your first film you're going to do fucking Reservoir Dogs. And there's there's so many filmmakers who their debut film is just absolute banger. You know, mm-hmm. this is not terribly uncommon. Um but yeah, just Reservoir Dogs, it was just the time it was it was, you know, it was the early 90s. It was I mean, it was so much that went into that. Now we see something that's similar and Mobland is not dissimilar in, in, in that I'm just doing something that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm playing into a genre that that film helped create in the early 90s. Um, I'm not doing anything groundbreaking. I'm just doing my version of it and paying my homage. And, uh, you know, it's my love letter to the genre. And so, but yeah, to, and I, I truly think Reservoir Dogs is the first one and it's it's just because I'm being solipsistic and it's and it's my first one. So it's the only one that matters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just I, I rewatched it last night. I hadn't seen it in a long time. And oh, hell yeah, that's it, epic. It's just like it's brutal. It's like, you know, there are funny parts like there is uh, there's, you know, lightness and dark. Um, but the last like 30 minutes so intense and so um yeah just like pulling that off on a tiny budget yeah uh crazy i mean i don't i don't know what the point is that i have what i'm no, saying no no just- it, it's just it, well i think it's so fun because i get to watch you you know it's been a while since you've watched it and I, it's, it's really fun for me to watch you articulate what you enjoy about it now uh you know in the same reason why i love seeing movies for the first time um you know, a movie I love with someone who's never seen it, that sort of thing. So it's just watching you respond to you watching it last night is so fun because it is. And I think that I could watch this film tonight. I could watch Reservoir Dogs tonight and get something completely different out of it than I did when I was 13 and that I will when I'm 60. And I think that's what's so fun, you know, the subjectivity of, of art, um, whether it's music, um, you know, paintings or cinema, it's, it's, that's what's so fun about it is that it has everything to do with perspective and where you are and what you're feeling and everything. So, you know, that's the fun thing about, uh, you know, watching a film like Reservoir Dogs is that I would respond to it completely different now and get something different out of it than I would when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely, I definitely did. And I, I think, you know, I, I, this is not an uncommon experience with his movies, but uh, Pulp Fiction was the first of his movies that I saw and came back to this one after it. And I think, you know, the connections between those two movies, just the nonlinear structure and yep. like the laying the foundations for um, what would become his kind of signature style, the blueprint um, that, you know, his films are different. There, There's uh, there's through lines that you can you can pick out but um yeah just having this kind of uh, just very unique vision very unique directorial style the way he injects himself i mean you know physically also yeah yeah um you know uh in literally and figuratively um uh but just uh, another thing that really struck me is those monologues at the beginning um, the monologues that happened in Pulp Fiction as well. I mean, I was just an, uh, a, an exhausting, uh, precocious teenager who was like, I know everything about uh, how cool these movies are. And I'd like memorize the monologues and like, perform them for my friends and yep. stuff. Just like uh, cringing looking back on that. But um, it's all like it feels like it's his voice. You can hear him saying it. And there are so many moments. I mean, you know, the ear slicing thing when... Uh, Michael Madsen's like, you know, says something like, oh, I just, you know, I get a kick out of torturing cops or something like that. Totally, yeah. And it's, 
basically Quentin Tarantino, when he talks about that scene, he was like, yeah, I get a kick out of making audiences watch that. Yeah. So yeah, all, all of that stuff is just um, so uniquely him. Totally. And, and that's the fun, what I love so much about it and watching it now is I'm such a huge Tarantino fan. So I can watch, um, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, or I can watch Django Unchained. And the same thing that you're talking about, it's the devices that he's created over time. It's, it's, it's honing his craft with uh, nonlinear storytelling and the character development. But then you're like, oh yeah, but there is a movie that he did that that exists, but it was done, done on such a small budget that it's still gritty and brutal and independent feeling. And I get to watch that. So it's like this accessible version of that, which is Reservoir Dogs, in the same way that you get to watch Interstellar and you get to watch Tenet and Oppenheimer, but then you can fucking watch Memento and see the same thing, but like on this tiny scale that makes it so much more personal in a way. And so, I mean, it's just so incredibly fun. I mean, yeah, it's just how do you not love movies and 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 the careers of these guys uh, and these people when, yeah, when you can see, it's like rediscovering your 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 favorite film, I guess, in a way, right? It's because you've grown up with these directors and you've come to love what they do, but then remember that there's those gritty, gritty, noir versions of what they do. It's like a perfectly uh, done homage. You know, it's just so much fun. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I am much more a fan of his earlier movies that are a little more grounded in reality where he talks about it as like, he has grounded movies and then the movie movies that are like uh, the movies that the characters in the more grounded movies would watch. And this, you know, the first three movies, I think, are the ones that are really, uh, you know, there's there's weird shit in them. There's stuff that's a bit heightened, but more uh, it's easier to f- see them as uh, something that could be the real world. And then beyond that, it's like everything gets a bit high, even more heightened. Some of it's a bit cartoony, cool. you know, kind of Kill Bill. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and maybe, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood is kind of bringing that back. There's still some kind of, you know, fantasy stuff with, uh, you know, killing the, uh, killers in the end. Yeah. The revisionist history yeah. that he's yeah. come to be known for, you know, all mm-hmm. that. Yeah. A hundred percent. It totally, it, it's the same thing. You know, music is a massive part of my life, uh, my inspiration. And so, you know, there's always those bands uh, you know, it's maybe that demo that that band recorded in their bedroom and it's just on a four track and it's just this brutal, gritty, you know, passionate uh, uh, recording. And then they went on to have a 20 to 30 year career and you get the really polished, unbelievable albums that they do. But you just don't get that, you know, four musicians in a bedroom recording on a four track. It's like you just don't get that passion it becomes something different and something special into its own right. But uh, yeah, it's the same way that I feel about music and with bands and, and, and like I said, recordings and everything, um, you know, listening to get up kids four minute mile album when it was on Doghouse records. And it's just like this really gritty recording. And then after that, I could care less about that band because it's like they're, you know, it became something different and everything and people love them and they did great things for, the genre and all that, but like that first recording, that first album is like, you just can't get any more special than that for me. You know? Yeah. I, like I was uh, talking to somebody about this the other day, a PJ Harvey's got a new, I think her album's just come out and yeah, yeah. same kind of deal that like, I love the early, like evil, just like aggressive, dark stuff. Yep. And she's shifted away yep. from that. She won't play those songs anymore. She's just like, I'm a different person. That, that That's not me anymore. 
and you know, artists evolve. I, I, I like that people want to push themselves to do different things, but like, fuck, I miss that. <laughs> that's, that's what I want from you. And she's never going to do it again. Well, it, but just like that, I mean, that's, what's so great about the, again, the subjectivity of the art. And you know, that's one of the things that's been helping me being so fucking terrified about my film coming out. Right. Cause it's like, it's not my mom being like, Oh my God, that was so great. <laughs> you know, it's, it's people who don't know anything. They don't know anything about the schedule or the budget or the shit that I had to eat to get this done. It's, they don't know about that. All they see is a film that better be as good as Skyfall because mm -hmm. it's like, that's what films are. Right. And so that's terrifying. But at the same, I fucking can't stand Nirvana. Like it's okay. I respect the shit on Nirvana and I love what they did for music. And I think they're absolute geniuses. I don't want to listen to Nirvana. Sonically, it makes no sense in my head. So it's like, it's so subjective. And that's what's so great about all the art, you know, whether it's visual or, you know, music, whatever it is, is like, that's okay. You know, it's okay that you maybe don't respond to PJ Harvey's new album the same way that you did the old stuff. You know, that's, that's subjective. And, and we all have to be okay with that. The artists, the ones creating it and the people, you know, uh, uh, consuming it. Right. You know, that's why it's hard with, uh, even with critics and with, uh, whether it's bloggers or just anyone being like, you know, on Reddit, that film sucked. I'm like, no, it didn't. Mm -hmm. There's some awful, awful, objectively awful films that I think are absolutely amazing because I get something out of it. Time for a quick break because somebody's got to keep the lights on around here, but we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. And this movie, I was like looking back through old reviews, um, uh, kind of <laughs> in preparation for this. And it's most of them are very favorable, but there's, you know, Roger Ebert kind of hated it. Or he, he was just like, you know, he was like two and a half, kind of middling, uh, like pro promising, but, you know, he thinks he's better than he is or something. Um, 100%. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, it, like you said, taste is subjective and it's, um, it, it is really. Uh, you, you are never going to be able to please everyone. And, oh, no, you know, no. as, as artists, you know, we put things out in the world and, uh, just say, here it is. I like it. <laughs> see, see what you think. Um, totally. speaking of music, this movie, um, another big feature definitely of, uh, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. I, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know if I'm, it's just me. Like I'm not as big on like listening to film soundtracks anymore as I was when I was a teenager. Sure. Yeah. This movie and Pulp Fiction, uh, it's just like incredible. The way he uses music, the songs he chooses, it's so careful and so deliberate. And I, I don't know how Steelers Wheel feel about uh, the use <laughs> of their song for that horrific scene and that nobody can ever hear that song again without thinking ever, of somebody. Never, yeah. It's always, no matter what, yeah. Like Magic Carpet Ride will always be something different mm -hmm. than what the band intended because of Quentin Tarantino. You know, right. how great is that too? Mm -hmm. uh, but also what's funny is like, I don't, 
I wouldn't have even been able to say Steelers Wheel before I watched Reservoir Dogs. Right. Like, I mean, who didn't buy that album? Mostly so I could listen to the, like a version monologue <laughs> and memorize it. Um, but like, are you kidding? It made me fall in love with Magic Carpet, right? Mm. Like what? Yeah. You know? So I think, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, you can credit. Well, I mean, fuck, you can credit him for, you know, giving life to these songs to a whole new audience, you know. But uh, yeah, man, what was it like to have a budget to uh, get songs for a film? That must have been epic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> what, what was that like? Apparently, almost the entire budget was given to Steeler's Wheel. Um, and that's, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, what conviction on Tarantino's part to be like, no, no, this is going to make that scene and the motherfucker was right. Yeah. Like it does, you know, it's so great. Yeah. Music for me, music, it's just such a huge part of my life. And so it's obviously going to be a huge part of my film consumption and how I view the film as which music, whether it's the score or uh, songs they chose to use to tell the story, or it's me as a filmmaker using the music um, in the, in the way that um, I think is going to add or do something to the audience. Um, it's just such a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Tarantino's arguably one of the, the better ones at doing that. You know, the song they shouldn't play during uh, what you're watching, that he's kind of the one who more or less, you know, made that popular. I would say. I would argue. There's probably a lot of cinephiles that are like, no, no, it was actually 1989. Yeah. I, but also, I mean, I think he is very good at choosing songs that uh, either... Uh, complement what is happening on the screen or work in contrast with what's happening 100%. on the screen so well. Which then complements, right? Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Or, But also, he, he, you know, I think is better known as a cinephile, but he loves music too. And I've heard him talk about these soundtracks before as like, he can listen to his own soundtracks because they're like mixtapes of songs that he loves. Yeah, just great music he loves, yeah. Um, yeah absolutely. And yeah, I think that that shows as well. But- Another uh, factor that was sticking out to me a lot last night watching this was uh, casting. And, oh, the, like, uh, Michael Madsen is, like, I, I don't understand how he didn't have a much bigger career than he's had. I mean, he's, he has worked. Drugs. He's done a lot of stuff. I mean, that's... that's it was drugs. Point. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but... Just, you know, they talk in this movie about acting and saying, you know, naturalism is the thing and you really got to it's that's that's what you're aiming for. And I think he is uh, one of the best. It's just like you really uh, having this absolutely sociopathic, just like stone cold killer. It's just like dancing around with a smile on his face. Um, incredible. It's those all those actors, you know, whether it's Tim Roth, um, Bushimi. Um, pen there's not an overacted moment in the entire film like none of i don't think any of those actors are capable of overacting or even reaching like for me they're all so it's almost the opposite they're almost downplaying everything they're doing to a point that it's like you know you're in some way you know tim roth can get super animated and say with bushimi at, at, at times but it's almost like you're you're kind of suffering through some of the scenes with them and I think that it's it's so perfectly acted because of that. It's just it's it's the hyper um, realistic, and it's also you're dealing with these. They're all seemingly at least like kind of these alpha males 
um, not just their characters, but the actors in general, whether it's Keitel, Penn, you know, it's these very, very bold, you know, masculine, at least I'm, I'm assuming, you know, I'm guessing they are, at least that's how they come across oftentimes, but you know, uh, the actors themselves and also their characters, but it's just all in the nuances of the, of the performances, which is so much fun. You know, you get Tim Ross screaming and bleeding and, you know, it's all that. And Bushimi definitely takes it up. And then, you know, Tim Roth with, with his monologues and everything, but mm -hmm. um, there's just none of them reached. And whether that was the actors or whether it was Tarantino, maybe holding them back a little bit, but that adds so much to it that it just keeps you in this world of, you know, warehouses and dirty sidewalks and hot pavement and trunks of cars. And you're just kind of in it with them because they're, there's, there's no excitement to their performances. Um, you know, I, I think very much on purpose. So that's, it's just so incredibly fun to watch. Right. And that makes it incredibly exciting. It's like, you know, it's an action movie with no action and, uh, everything that would be, shootouts and and the stuff that you'd expect from an action movie or a thriller or whatever is all implied it's all off screen you know part of it is budgetary concerns but it was also intentional and the way that all of that tension and excitement is conveyed through these performances that are so tight and in these locations that are just like kind of claustrophobic um is incredible yeah i mean it's 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 master storytelling um the fact that you, you know, it's an undercover cop. It's a, you know, you have all of these elements and it's like, of course, it's just, it's a masterclass in storytelling and in structure, um, screenplay structure for him to be able to pull that off uh, in the same way that, you know, a lot of other writer directors can do that also. I mean, God, David Fincher in seven, never showing a murder, like, but Kevin Spacey's on camera for what, four minutes or something. And he's arguably one of the most terrifying villains in the history of cinema. Um, similar to that vein where it's like, it's just, it's, it's a masterclass in, in, in just in storytelling and in structure, um, the way that he was able to manipulate the audience into, you know, such a heightened state of, of, of panic while you're just watching these guys fucking sit on a car in a warehouse, you know, like, fuck, it's so good. Maybe some distant sirens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, the nonlinear aspect of it makes it. So that it's, you know, a thriller, action movie, police, procedural, whatever, but it's a mystery. <laughs> it's like you have to kind of piece together what's happening. And, you know, there are bits that the audience is a little bit ahead of the characters, like everybody knows that Tim Roth is a cop, that kind of thing. But, yep. um, yep. and so much of it is left unresolved. Um, and it's just like, it's down to you to figure out, uh, you know, what, what exactly the heist was all about. Um, and, uh, but it's also not important. Right. Right. And that's, what's so great mm -hmm. about Reservoir Dogs too. It's like, it doesn't fucking matter who cares about the diamonds. That's not what the story is, you know, and in the same way, you know, I talk about Hurt Locker in that way that it's like, it doesn't matter what happened, what happened to these guys after you're watching. It's like a French, uh, 1960s French film. It's just a snippet of life. You're just getting that little bit. And that's all that's important. You know, the only thing that's important is how, you know, Mr. Blonde treated the cop. That's the only thing that matters. Uh, you know, the rest of it, yeah, life goes on, the story. Some of them died, some of them lived, some of them went to jail. Who the fuck cares? It's about the interaction in the warehouse. That's the only thing that fucking matters. In creating that, that micro, uh, you know, that world for us to live in and exist in for, you know, two hours. God, it's just so much fun. So much fun. Yeah. And then just that last, you know hearing the gunshots and then it's like yeah, totally. who's dead who's live you know yeah nobody knows bye <laughs>
Yeah, which I still, I mean, any any film that ends uh, ambiguously is still like, I'm a sucker for it. Um, I'm not going to say that Mobland does that a little bit, but <laughs> there might be a little bit of that in there. Um, I just love it. I, I, I'm a, that uh, just reminded me of The Grey, which is um, one of the more polarizing films ever that I absolutely fucking adore. And people hate that film. I love Joe Carnahan and I love that movie so much, but I love at the end you know, you have no clue what happens. And I just, I, I love stuff like that. And so yet yeah, to have Reservoir Dogs in like that, especially when all of his other films for the most part are kind of tied up and buttoned up and like, here you go, this is what happened. Um, whether it's revisionist or not. Um, I love Reservoir Dogs for that reason is that it's way more um, a little, you know, dare I say French cinema in that way that it's like, it's just, you know, this is what it is. You get a little taste of it and nothing else matters, you know? Yeah. It's not tied up with a bow. Sorry, back up. Who hates the gray? Fuck off. No. Oh my God, dude. Every, like, it is so incredibly polarizing. I, I argue that film more than any other film because I, for me, I think it is such perfect storytelling. And people are like, oh, it's CG wolves and this and that. I'm like, storytelling wise, it is nonlinear. You know how it's going to fucking end the second it starts. It is beautiful performances by every one of those actors. Some of the best death scenes, I think, on in film. I think it is so incredibly underrated. And I love Joe Carnahan. I'm such a Joe Carnahan fan from NARC. Like, I just love his movies. I love his scripts. I love the way he writes. And uh, I think that film, it's funny, but so many times I'll be like, have you seen The Great? People are like, the fuck? The Wolf movie? What are you talking about? <laughs> that movie sucks. Liam Neeson? I'm like, Liam Neeson is so fun. I mean, I could go, I, I should have picked that movie is what they're talking about. <laughs> But like the fact that he recites a poem right before and you're just like, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Like I am sold. Like I, I think that is so fucking perfect that it's laughable. And I think it's one of the most underrated. Yeah. And also just, I mean, suspend your disbelief. Of course, the wolves are CG. You're not going to get trained wolves to do <laughs> all of this shit. I don't know. I guess people want like a practical wolf puppet or something, but um. I guess, man, I, I just, it's so funny. Cause I like, if you talk about Liam Neeson's best performance, like I'm, that's up there. Uh, sure. Frank Grillo is unreal in that movie. I completely believe that character. And I believe that he would sit down and just die because he's done. Cause he's such an arrogant asshole that he's going to control how he dies. I'd like, I just think it's so perfectly written. I'm such a fan of that movie. Yeah. Same. Oh, good. I like that. So we're friends now because yes. I think it's it's literally gray fans and non-gray fans. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll probably get a lot of hate. It's like, oh, I'm not going to see Madeline because he likes the gray. <laughs> everyone. Fuck everyone. Taste is subjective. We have already established that. Yes. So no. Yeah, but the feelings. gray is objectively yeah. a perfect film. It, so we're good with that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that is a lovely, lovely note to uh, to finish on. <laughs> yeah, this has been so fun. Um, thank, thanks so much for uh, making time for me. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. I was really looking forward to this one. I, I really appreciate you having me. I appreciate you letting me talk about uh, nerdy stuff like uh, like Reservoir Dogs in the Gray. That that is my wheelhouse. So. <laughs> this is my favorite shit. This is this is so much fun for me to do. Um, you know, this is still special and magic for me. So interviews are still incredibly fun. So I was really happy to be part of it, man. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much. Cool. Bye. That was pretty fucking fun, right? Thanks again to Nicholas for talking to me. Mobland is available digitally right this very second, and you should watch it, let's say, tonight. You don't have any better plans, let's face it. And that's about it. 
please follow me on social media at Spark Parade. I will be back on Wednesday for more fun and games as per usual. So be good till then. And until next time, uh, bye. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.